Welcome to the This Girl Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Tina Hassan, and this is the podcast for women who sell. Most of you will know my guest today or have read one of her many books. And I'm just so truly honored to have had this conversation with Lynn Parday. And to have her on the podcast is just so humbling. I was quite surprised to hear what a love story her sailing journey has been from falling in love with the dream of cruising and sailing and then of course falling in love with a sailor. I was hanging on her every word to just hear how she got into sailing and how she ended up sailing around the world over 11 plus starting out in a 20-footer. Her experiences, the challenges that she faced and I just loved what she said about the beauty of teamwork and the special relationship you have with a partner when you're sailing, especially full-time in a small space. And she has some tips and tricks on how to really strengthen that relationship. We talk about her books. We talk about Heaving 2, how she came to write Storm Tactics, key things she recommends for preparing for an offshore passage, some books that she recommends, and of course the history and her story of how she started sailing all those years ago. So, let's get into this juicy conversation and have a chat with Lynn Parday. Lynn Parday, welcome to the This Girl Sales podcast. I am so, so grateful to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's really fun to join in and encourage other women whenever I can. For those that don't know you, can you give us some, some insight into who you are in your life? Well, let's see. Fifty-five years ago, I ran away with a sailor. I'd never sailed before, except when I was five and six years old with my father on a little sailboat he had on a wake. And uh, it's a long, funny story how I met my husband. It was accidental. Uh, I met him one day. I moved in with him three days later. He was a professional yacht skipper, racing sailor. He uh, had quite a racing background. And he had decided he dreamed of going cruising. At that time, it was not near as common as it is today. He couldn't find a boat that he could afford that he liked, so he had already started building a boat. Fortunately, he had fantastic woodworking skills. I think he was born with fingers that knew how to make wood beautiful. (laughs) And uh, three days later, I was out there sanding on these lumps of timber with him. Someone just asked me recently, did you fall in love with Larry or did you fall in love with the dream? And when I hesitated, they said to me, yep, it was the dream. The dream. (laughs) Uh, I I grew up knowing only one thing about myself, and that was I wanted to be different. I had no idea what different meant. I just was a a rebel from the day I was born, my mother says. But uh, I had studied mathematical type subjects I was uh, learning to be a business accountant so running off to become a sailor helping to learn boat building was the farthest thing from my mind but I took to it it was just magic Uh, it was something I loved I loved the bohemianness of living in the boatyard with the boat you're building so we spent uh, three and a half years together building a 24 foot four inch wooden cutter this is, we're talking in 1965 to 
1968, and um, we earned the money with me doing accounting work for little other little boat building companies, and Larry working almost full time on the boat. I got him out of being a, yard, a charter skipper because it was take too much of our time. We wanted to go sailing, but our dream at that time was to get four or five months off to do just what we wanted to do, to play with the boat, go places. Our dream was only to sail down to Mexico for four or five months. And then we kind of thought we'd come back and open a little boatyard because we worked so well together. Well, about five months into it, four months into our first little voyage, we set off without an engine, by the way, because we were so excited to go that we didn't want to spend the money building, or the time to earn the money to put an engine in. We said, we'll go for four or five months and then come back and work for a few years, put an engine in the boat, and maybe we go off again. Well, four months later, after we've been cruising in Mexico, a family came over and said, we want to move our boat to the United States, and my husband's not well, would you help us? So we helped them deliver their boat, big, quite a large boat, and ended up with enough money to go for another four or five months. And uh, long story short, we never went home again. <laughs> so we, we cruised. We ended up going around the world on our 24-footer the wrong way, east about. Spent 11 years doing that. And about three years into our cruise, I got angry at something I read in a yachting magazine, wrote a nasty letter to the editor. He wrote back, prove it. <laughs> and uh, so I did some research and wrote a story with Larry urging me to try never did any writing before but the editor really liked it and not only that he sent me money and so that gradually grew into a writing career so we delivered boats we repaired boats we did rigging we did survey work in foreign countries surveyed some strange boats uh but uh <laughs> then the writing kicked in and uh 14 books later we built that, you know, over the years I wrote 14 books on various aspects of sailing to encourage other people. And that helped pay for us uh, to keep cruising. We still continued to deliver boats and do repairs when people wanted them. But we then came back and built a second boat because we just wanted to break after 11 years of cruising, we wanted to do something different. And so we built a large boat. We built a 29 footer. And once again, left the engine off, but this time we didn't put the engine in for a different reason. It's because we had loved the challenge of sailing without an engine. It kept our life, well, it, it added excitement to our life, to be honest. Or Larry used to say, cheap thrills. Mm -hmm. But we voyaged onward together for 47 years between the two boats, the equivalent of five circumnavigations. Uh, but uh, it was amazing and wonderful. And then uh, my Larry unfortunately developed Parkinson's and uh, we voyaged until he was quite uh, having a lot of trouble with his balance uh, and uh, settled in New Zealand at, uh, after 47 years of voyaging. And Larry then had to go into care eventually 
took care of him for six years at home, but it became too difficult. And uh, then um, a year after he was in care, I met a sailor from Australia who was just finishing a circumnavigation. And um, he invited me to sail around New Zealand with him if I'd like to, because he wanted to go down to the Marlborough Sound, not Marlborough Sound, the um, Milford Sound in the Fjordland. And uh, long story short, we've been sailing together now for two and a half years. A lovely Australian man, very different, boat's completely different. Right now the engine is being fixed. And uh, every once in a while I get ticked off at having the engine because it needs to be fixed. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's, no, it's just, <laughs> it's, uh, we put a new engine panel in it and uh, it's giving us a little bit of misreading on some of the dials but uh no it's been very interesting and uh learning to sail with a new person a new type of boat um life couldn't be more interesting and that's quite amazing i'm now 76 or 75 and three quarters and looking forward to sailing from the south of new zealand of australia we sailed around tasmania and now we're sailing up the coast of australia with the goal of getting back to New Zealand for the America's Cup. Oh, fantastic. That's, yeah, that's a little bit of my history. Wow, Lynn, what what an amazing story. Oh, I've got goosebumps. It just sounds such a beautiful life. Fantastic. <laughs> well, I sure was lucky to... I, the right men chose me. I can't say I chose them. Was, that would be like I actually knew what I was doing. <laughs> I just fell into a wonderful life with two exceptional men. Yes. They have to be exceptional to put up with me. <laughs> yeah, there's um I often get asked by other women, you know, how do you live with your partner in such a small space because we we literally as you know, you spend every minute with them and then you you know, you rely so heavily on your on your partner more so than maybe on a land-based relationship because sometimes it is, you know, quite not life and death, but close to it. Do you have any tips and tricks for, for navigating a relationship at sea? Well, it's funny. The other days, some people who were not sailors came on board Sahula. That's the boat I'm on. And she's 40 feet long, but she's a relatively small 40-footer compared to more modern boats because she was designed 35 years ago. And uh, they said, how do you live in such a small space? And I looked around and I didn't think it was very small. I'm so comfortable within the boat. But I think what they were asking is, how do you live together when you actually can see the person you're partnering almost 20 hours out of 24 or when you're not sleeping? And I think the being together was actually easier in the long run. Once you know, Larry and I fell into it, we've been working together. When you live together on a boat and become true partners, a team, you get to see what the other person actually does in life. And you get to realize how, how clever they are, how uh, well they handle situations, how frustrated they get, and you become attuned to them where when you go to work, you only see each other occasionally. 
and you really don't know what that other person's doing. So you don't know why they're frustrated or why they're satisfied. And I remember when Larry and I were first together after six months, I was working at a job. He was working three days a week at a job and working building the boat the other days. And one day he said to me, Lynn, I don't like this. I said, what? He says, every morning you get up and you rush about and you go charging off, leaving me feeling like, you know, I've been hit by a ton of gravel as you rush out the door to get to the work. You go and you give those people the very best of yourself all day long just for cash. Hmm. Then you come back and you give me what's left over, his exact words, the crap that's left over at the end of the day for love. And he says, that's backwards. I should be getting the best of you. He says, job. And since I've got some money in the bank, I'll support you to six months of figuring out how you can make a living where I can see you doing it. He said, I want to know what you do. So I took the leap and I did quit my job and I set up a little job business at, in our boatyard. And it changed our whole life because I began to see what he did. I began to see what a clever human being he was. Mm. And so the living together became a wonder instead of a nuisance. But we did learn that we each had our own sphere within our lives. You know, I tended to take care of all the financial dealing. I tended to take care of all the business of our life. He tended to build things. So we were doing things in which we each had control and we each impressed each other because we did it well and overlapping skills is the way you could call it. And so we had privacy within our relationship when we were off doing our own part of our lives together. But we also religiously took a few weeks off every year to be separate. Hmm. Just to get, maybe just to get lonely. <laughs> no, to realize how much we appreciated each other. Yes, yes. And also to realize that we could survive on our own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I guess does that answer the question? Oh, yes, beautifully. Yeah, everything you said is 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 just so valuable in terms of when you do spend the time together that you really actually learn learn who the person that you're with is and their strengths and weaknesses and I I've I've found that my partner and I have have really fallen into a, or complimenting each other, you know, like he's he's good at some things, well, and, and I'm, uh, I would say I was going I've been asked to give a talk at the wedding, uh, yeah. in the church, yeah, for this couple that matters a lot to me, and they asked me to talk about love and about you know how to build the kind of relationship that they've watched Larry and I have, and. I have to be careful because what I'd really like to tell him is Larry's adage, which was, your job is to cover my ass. <laughs> well, you can't really say that in British <laughs> church. But it's really a truism in that uh, we both agreed to work to make each other look good. Yes. And part of that is, uh, i give you a funny story. Yeah, do we have time for a funny story? Yes, Absolutely. We decided 
we were sailing up the Solent River in our the Solent in England on our twenty four footer. And we happened to be a day first day of the sailing season in May. Beautiful sailing. We had the spinnaker up, we had the tide under us, so here's this little twenty four footer, we're making ten knots over the ground. And we are going into cows. And as you're approaching cows, there's this huge yacht club on the point. And we could see everybody with their binoculars. So we decided to do a little bit of grandstanding. Just, I admit it was grandstanding. So Larry says to me, Lynn, let's drop the spinnaker just in front of the club, round up, pop up the staysail, and do a quick reach up the river past everybody. I said, sure, why not? So he said, here's what we'll do. And he led back. He gave me the guide and the sheet, one in each hand. I put the tiller between my legs. And he, then he led the halyard back so that I could ease the halyard out while he was on the foredeck pulling the spinnaker down. So I'm happily steering there, having a grand old time, thinking this looks great. And looking at the binoculars, staring at us. And Larry says to me, ease the halyard. So I let out the line that was in my hand. And he yelled again, Lynn, ease the bloody halyard. So I let out the line a bit. He let out a real yell as we are getting very close to moored boats. And I look up as I'm easing the line, and I realize I'm letting the mainsail down, not the spinnaker. <laughs> I've got the wrong halyard in my hand. Well, when I yelled about that, he says, Lynn, jibe quick. We took a jibe. That worked perfectly. We reached across, and we went and anchored in Southampton instead of in cows. <laughs> After that, <laughs> we were so embarrassed. <laughs> so when we were dissecting what had gone wrong, I said, you gave me the wrong halyard. And Larry said to me, Lynn, look at it another way. He says, you didn't check which halyard I gave you. Mm. He says, the lines have different color specs in them. Well, I looked at him and I said, you're right. I didn't cover your rear end. <laughs> so this is a little story that to me, what has made our relationships really work well is we're a team, we watch out for each other, and we never say anything negative about each other in public, ever. Yes. That's something we might discuss later. Never correct each other in public. Yeah. Never say, you should have said this. If, I, if there's something I want to add to a story that Larry says, I won't say you forgot to say this. I'll say, Larry, can I add something else to what you're saying? So these little things become very important when you're a team living together, working together as close as you do on the boat. Beautiful. Respect, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Love it. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm just taking it all in. <laughs> Now that I've talked to yeah. No, 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 it's great. It's great. And I just, um, I'm just absorbing all of your, your wisdom and, and yeah, it's, it's so lovely to hear from someone who's, who's got, you know, so much experience and so much time on the water doing, 
living in this environment. So um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> I'm always fascinated to hear from women when they started out sailing, how they kind of went from knowing, you know, nothing through that transition stage of it being such a big learning curve to gaining the confidence. And I, I guess I'd like to ask you what hurdles did you personally face and how did you overcome them in the beginning of learning sailing? Well, I was thrust right into the professional end of sailing because you know, from the day I met Larry, I was helping him move boats around. But he insisted in the nicest way that I get a dinghy mm -hmm. and learn to really understand what sails were and how to use them. And so he helped me. I, I was working for a small boat building company. I got a seven-foot dinghy hull. He kitted it out so pretty it was adorable and set me off on my first, the first day we launched it, he uh, actually made a little launching party for my seven-foot Rabicon, that was the name, and set me off from the dock in a very enclosed space and uh, I'd already done a, three or four hundred miles taking boats up and down the coast with him by that time, but still, this was the first time in a boat that I was in charge of that was small, so I would feel what happened. And he yells at me, Lynn, don't jibe, as I'm re running away from the dock. A minute later, he yelled, Lynn, don't jibe. And I looked back and said, what? And the third time, he yelled, Lynn, duck, quick. Mm. That's a jibe. <laughs> so, <laughs> but learning to sail that little dinghy immediately brought me into his world and understanding what the wind did and uh, that was my first step and I did come to like it we took some funny little excursions with that boat so that was my first step so I started to understand what sailing was but I also had my own boat it's kind of fun and I really recommend uh, people of all sorts not just women get out in smaller boats before they try to learn to sail. You can't learn to sail truly in a 40-footer, not understanding the wind and uh, how to handle the boat, what the sail balance does. It becomes intriguing. It maybe it intrigues me because I have a mathematical mind. Mm -hmm. But uh, So that was my first step. And the second step was Larry was very careful to introduce me to offshore work with no storms at first, going out in boats that he really liked, because we sailed other people's boats, as I mentioned, never let me go on a delivery where he felt there was going to be problems of any sort uh, until I'd had quite a bit of experience. So he introduced me gradually to the sailing. So I would say that the, that gradual introduction and getting out in other boats, not just the boat we were on, helped me helped me appreciate my boat better and made me more comfortable with the uh, sailing. So it was just a gradual learning to sail different boats. But then he started encouraging me, encouraging me to sail our own boat by myself. Now remember, we had no engine, so we were talking purely sailing. And um, I remember the first time I short-tacked the boat up the bay in Newport, all by myself, you know, sheeting the sheets in, and uh, at a certain point, Larry said to me, Lynn, you're a little too close to the wind, and I said, 
okay, and I eased off. And then he said, you know, you could bring her up a little bit. And I say, and I was listening. And at a certain point, all of a sudden, I turned to him and I said, I'm supposed to be learning how to sail this boat myself. So why don't you go down in the cabin and read a good book? Or go to the end of the bowsprit and sit and yell at the seagulls or something. But just go away. Let me do it. Let me make my own mistakes. I promise I won't hit anything. And he, he glowed. He was so proud. Oh, <laughs> he was funny. wonderful. And he did. He shut up. And all of a sudden, I started thinking only about what I was doing, not about trying to please him. Yeah. And eventually, I did t- take a few little single-handed jaunts on the boat completely myself. And... Uh, it built my confidence up. That's that's important, isn't it? Just to, to the little steps to build the confidence. So how when when it came to doing more and more heavy weather sailing, how, did you ever have to overcome fear? And how do you do you have tips for for women that are maybe wanting to do offshore passages, but the thought of being in heavy weather just you know it can be debil- debil- debilitating. The fear of that. You know, how do you learn? How do you start with with getting getting out into heavy weather and learning how to how to handle it? I was lucky. Uh, Larry had quite a bit of heavy weather experience before I met him because he'd sailed to Hawaii and back. He'd sailed down to Mexico a couple times. He'd had to when you deliver boats, you don't get to choose the best weather. Yeah, and it's usually to windward. Yeah, but uh, he also had sailed with one of the finest skippers in the world at that time, a man named Bob Sloan. Uh, and they just, it came natural at that time, which was to just, if the weather felt uncomfortable, you stop and heave too. So to him, that was just what you did. So he had already taught me about heaving too. And that's first, when we first were doing sea trials with our little boat, we went out and hoped to see how it hove too. That's the first thing you check was how would you, how do you stop this boat make it face the wind and seas. Uh, so I had this, he'd already coached me that heavy weather was not going to be something that we had to fear. Uh, but then um, you can't get over, to me, the fear that I realized I had when I first set off on our own boat, heading away for the first time, was the fear of disappointment. So a lot of times, not living up to my potential, you know, not backing him up, not mm-hmm. liking what we were doing. Being, I was afraid of being so frightened I couldn't impress him, I guess is the right word. Oh, yes. I can uh, so relate to that. Oh. Yeah. You want to back the, you, you want to be part of the dream, and yet we have this fear. Um, first time we headed away from California down to Mexico, we hit strong weather, not heavy, not extreme, but 30 knots of wind. I got so seasick. I was laying on the cabin sole, uh, just feeling so miserable, saying, I have destroyed Larry's dream. This is it. How horrible. Mm. And he came down in the cabin, and he sat on the settee next to me and started stroking my forehead and said, don't feel bad, Lynn. You'll get over this. Remember, Admiral Nelson got seasick on every journey for the first two days out. And it made me laugh. <laughs> he was right. I got over it. But he stopped the boat and hove to to help me get over it. So at 30 knots of wind, even though it was fair wind, he turned the boat around, faced it into the seas. 
and she calmed down so much that within an hour I was making an omelet. Mm. Well, if it worked so well then, I already started to have the confidence it would also work later. It was something that the two of us could do and I could uh, get. So it was a gradual thing. Mm. And knowing about heaving to and knowing how to handle the boat, uh, knowing... So basically, it was a gradual thing, but uh, fear is about the unknown mostly, and unfortunately, it's hard to write wonderful stories about wonderful weather, so the majority of stories people write about their voyages uh, will include their stormy times, and people get it out of proportion. I know people who have sailed around the world without ever encountering winds at sea of over 30 knots, 35 knots. <laughs> but it's that fear of what will happen and what to do that uh, keeps people thinking about storms. So, yeah, it just, except it's it's not the norm yes. to go out and put yourself in dangerous way. But people do it every day. They go out on their car and get on the motorway and think nothing of it mm. because it's so common but that's what scares me. Yes, yes. You've you've written a whole book on heavy weather sailing. How how did you come to to write that book, and, and what was the drive behind that? It's kind of interesting. Um, back in the late eighties, no, mid eighties. Several people books were written about how important it, that the best the, you know, the best tactic for handling storms was to run before the storms, and I lost three friends who did that. They just they pitch pulled their boats. Mm. And then I started. Then the Fastnet race came along in 1979. That was another one, and uh, 200 and some 200 boats got into trouble and had to you know this, they had an unusual storm. They've been and a lot of boats, not the boats didn't get in trouble, the people did, on their boats. But uh, when the reports were written about what happened, and when we re- researched what happened, uh, there was uh, 19 people died during that storm. And we found that almost all of the people that died or abandoned their boats had continued to run. Only 33 boats chose to were the crews on 33 boats chose to heave to and just stop and wait the weather out. The rest continued running. Or in... And of those 200 boats that continued running, 46 of them were completely rolled over. People were washed off boats. People abandoned the boats. Their rudders broke off. Of the 33 boats that hove to, they reported no damage. Hmm. But yet... It wasn't included in the final report because they said it was the minority choice. Therefore, it wasn't as important as discussing what you could have done better when you were running. And we read that and we became pretty upset. And then there was another storm off of New Zealand. And so we started doing, we did wrote a couple of articles in magazines about this so-called forgotten art of heaving too, in which people said modern boats couldn't heave too. We use, uh, so we started going, getting people to let us take them, their 
so-called modern boats out, and we delivered a couple of modern, so-called modern boats, and others fin and skeg type boats instead of long keel, heavy displacement. And we could get all of them to heave to. Hmm. We could get them to stop. And to us, heaving to wasn't just for storms. It was for getting some rest. It was In one case, we had a boat we were delivering, and uh, the mast tried to fall down, and we said, let's just stop and do, put some extra rigging up on this. And we got her to lay beautifully, and it calmed things down, slowed everything down so we could do the repair. Well, we started writing some articles about this and got some interesting response. And then we started being invited to do seminars, and we used to do the one about storm tactics. And everyone was saying, oh, we've never heard of this. Nobody told me I could park my boat and get some rest. <laughs> so I kept saying to Larry, we should write this out into larger format so people could actually hear about it. Oh, no, we're not experts on heavy weather. You know, we've only sailed at that time 100, 120,000 miles, and experts write those kind of books. Well, a few years later, there was what was called the Queen's Birthday Storm off of New Zealand. And we're New Zealand citizens and have lived based there for almost 40 years. And some friends of ours were lost during that storm. And we were played their final words over the radio. They've been... It was an unusual storm, but not vastly unusual. It happens quite often in the winter, the kind of storm that caught them, too. Uh, but it's unusual to have a whole rally fleet out at exactly the same time as this kind of storm comes through. Yeah. And many of the boats came through okay. The ones that hove to had no trouble. Not one boat that hove to suffered damage. Several of the boats that had big crews on them were able to continue running, which was a choice. But in this case, it was a man with that we knew who had his new girlfriend and her two kids with him, a teenager. And in their radio call, they said, we've been running for two and a half days. We're tired. My partner has been cut badly. We're leaking. We're taking wind water through our port lights, the windows. What do we do? And the radio operator said, well, all I know that you can do is continue running as you are, or you can heave too. And the skipper's last comment was, well, I don't know how to heave too, so I'll keep running. Mm. Well, when we heard that, we said, we've got to write something down. And so we created, for the next set of seminars we were doing, we created a booklet called the Storm Tactics Handbook, or workbook, I think. And it became so rapidly accepted as a real book that we expanded it, and in the latest edition, we explain it isn't just Storm Tactics, and it talks about how to create a parachute anchor if your boat won't lay properly. But it's the principle, but what we try to explain, it isn't just for storms, it's for getting rest. And in the book, we also talk a lot about uh, preparing for storms and give some checklists for thinking through what you're going to do. And uh, it's been a very appreciated book, and I'm glad we finally did it. Uh, and uh, 
It also includes a chapter that was written for Adler Cole's heavy weather sailing on handling the worst, probably the worst storm we were ever in, which was right off the coast of Australia here during near Fraser Island when we got caught in a squeeze zone and laid to a parachute anchor for two and a half days. Hmm. Um, well, other boats did get in trouble, unfortunately, but it was a completely unreported storm was the interesting thing. It wasn't reported until after it had begun blowing. So people say, well, we don't need, you know, the radio is going to give us all the perfect weather information, so we don't need to know all this. Don't have to get out and practice. But in that case, the weather forecast had been extremely good, and many people set out on the passage out of the barrier reef. But unfortunately, a non-seasonal low tropical depression formed in the Coral Sea and came up against a ridge of high pressure on the coast of Australia, and the winds blew at 85 knots from the south for two and a half days. And we were already outside the barrier reef and moved to about 45 miles offshore during that period. And it's probably the shortest, nastiest seas I've ever seen. And uh, we've been around Cape Horn the wrong way, and I've never seen seas quite as steep. But we used a parachute anchor, and uh, you know the techniques we'd learned. Fortunately, most of the other boats had gone the inside route, but they got stuck in Tin Can Bay. It was an interesting time. So I'm just want to warn people that just because you have weather routers, and which I don't think are very, because they keep you from learning how to make your own decisions. But uh, good weather reports help, but they can't guarantee you'll never have to be out caught out in a storm. And so, so that just just to um, to reiterate that that book is called Storm Tactics. Storm Tactics Handbook. Handbook, yeah. And just for the next um, two weeks, it's available at <coughs> just seven ninety nine as a Kindle book. Fabulous. I'll um, I'll link to that in the show notes so people can can go straight to that from from the um, from the website. Yeah. But a lot of people like to have the hard copy because along with them because the checklists are very useful. Yes. We had other people help us make sure we covered the most important details about thinking about preparing your boat when you're when storms are approaching. So. Lynn, for for those that are heading offshore, so like uh, myself, my family and I are heading to um, New Caledonia in May, and you know, not just storm preparation, but for heading offshore, I know that there are quite a lot of things that need to be considered, and and you know, preparation is key. But what are sort of your top three things that you would um, suggest sailors consider when preparing for an offshore passage? Make up a good work list. Take it outside in the wind, let it blow away, and then write down the first eight things you remember from that work list. All the rest, you, remember you can upgrade your boat along the way. You don't have to have everything perfect. You'll never have everything perfect. Uh, so what are the most important things? Boat watertight and sound. Check that rigging one more time. Yeah. Make sure all the rigging is really up to stuff uh, and the steering system 
and then just make sure that you have access to enough water to in case all of any water makers or things fail just make sure you can i think the one thing i think is an important test is turn the electricity off on that boat all access to electricity and make sure you can use all important systems without access to the electricity because if that's the one failure that can really slow people up and if you can can you get water out of the water tanks can you keep enough food without that refrigeration working do you have some backup lights for all situations at sea so you can have running lights even if the electrics are down can you get the sails up and down just do a little practice run like that and then don't worry yourself about all the absolutely details don't worry yourself about whether all of the little bits and pieces work perfect if you can steer the boat eat drink sleep have lighting turn on the stove without electricity can you if the electricity is down can you turn on the stove because with electrical solenoids you can't always so you can have a bypass of some sort then remember it's a sailboat you can sail it in and out of port and anchor it you might not be able to take it into a marina if your engine doesn't work but just make sure you can use that basic sailing machine and then get out there and go and enjoy mm-hmm. people are trying to get their boats too perfect and trying and delaying and worrying themselves over things that are details it's a sailboat go out and enjoy it get out there safely yes here here beautiful <laughs> it's not the answer you're asking me for but no i would say the most say, saying the things that are most important to me uh what what i think about when i'm leaving is do i have enough good books to read <laughs> do i have some treats hidden away <laughs> david absolutely loves nougat so if i find some good bars of nougat i put it hidden away where you can't see them so to me it's are the sales and everything ready let's go sailing yeah we'll eat there's you can buy food almost every island as long as you've got enough to get there yes fantastic i <laughs> love it Lena, I could talk to you for days, but um, I am conscious of keeping this, you know, within within an hour. So <laughs> I just <Okay>. have <laughs> I have one more question. Now you have fourteen amazing books, which everyone should read. But if, apart from your books, can you suggest any other books or resources that people can call on when it comes to getting started with sailing and cruising and and offshore passages? Maybe one other book. Well, there's wonderful books out there. Um, when I first started voyaging, there just weren't these number of resources. There were, were almost no books. People weren't trying to learn everything before they go. Yeah. We yeah. tended to read the books that I enjoyed tremendously were books written by other sailors who'd had really interesting times and interesting encounters with people on shore. Uh, but I'd say if I was going to look at the library we have on board David's boat, which is quite different than what I had. Uh, Nigel Calder's Guide to Electrician Met- Manual for uh, Electrical and Mechanical. I have referred to that several times because this is a boat that's new to me and 
it's a really useful book to have on board. Uh, I like Alan Watts' uh, Instant Weather Forecasting, which is a book about cloud formations and gets you outside looking at clouds and learning about weather. Uh, I really, I want to learn more about the weather, more about the environment I'm in, and when you have a Dodger and uh, you know, like we have, because we're sailing down around Tasmania, we added some what they call clears, you know, side curtains. It's really nice, but it keeps you from feeling the weather quite as much. Yes. So I think it's important to get out and learn more about the weather so that you can look at local conditions because forecasters can tell you the general, but they can't always tell you your specific little area. So those are the two books that immediately come to mind. Amazing. Perfect. <laughs> and for my listeners that want to know more about you, follow your journey, find your books, where where can we find you? Website, Facebook, Instagram, all those sort of things? Well, we're on, we're, I'm on Facebook under Lynn Hardy. Um, and I have this wonderful young friend who's helping me with Instagram, and that's Party Lynn. But I have a website where I put some longer stories called partytime.blogs partytime.blogspot.com just type in Lynn Party in Google and it'll take you to that website and uh, I tend to put three or four good long stories on there every year sometimes a bit more so between those three spots they'll get tired of Lynn Party <laughs> oh amazing I don't so think at so the blog spot, it has all my books listed and if you want to be extra nice to me, if you buy any of the books through the Party Time blog spot, I actually earn a little bit more. Okay, fabulous. Well, I'll link to those books through your website. That's great. Thank you, Lynn, so much for your time and for being on the podcast. I, I love love your story and so much knowledge in, in your head. <laughs> it's fascinating. <laughs> and Very lucky sailor. Yes, no, it's it, it's such a beautiful, I, 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 I believe, obviously, because I'm doing it, but it's such a beautiful lifestyle, and, you know, my mission is to get more people, more families, more women out there sailing, and, and as you said, to just get out and do it, because I think we can overthink it a little bit too much, and hearing your your story and your experience really is so inspiring, and I love everything you've said, so I thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed this too. And uh, let me know when you put it up and I'll put a link to this so that some of my friends can share it too. Amazing. I will for sure. <laughs> thank you, Lynn. Good luck with your sailing. Yeah, thank you again, Lynn. This has been so, so great. And I'm, I'm going to go and download and buy all of your books. <laughs> <laughs> oh, enjoy. But actually, my absolute favorite book that I ever read, wrote. Yep. Uh, but the one that uh, didn't you know, didn't grab sailors as much until someone told him to read it, is called Bull Canyon. Bull Canyon. A boat builder, a writer, and other wildlife. Okay. Which was a, more of a literary book, a memoir. Oh. But that's... I think, I think the people thinking of going sailing will show, it shows a lot more about the teamwork that Larry and I had to build. Yes. Yeah. So building a boat on top of a mountain, but it actually won three literary awards, so I'm very proud of it. Okay, excellent. I'll look for that for sure. Amazing. Thank you, Lynn. Um, Have a wonderful day, whatever you do.
Wasn't that a delicious conversation? I just hung on every word that Lynn said and was so humbled by her experience and her knowledge and so grateful that she shared her story on the This Girl Sales podcast. You can find more podcasts from Conversations from Women Who Sail at www.thisgirlsales.com or you can follow along on Instagram and Facebook. I also share my journey of sailing and cruising full-time with my small family on our yacht Galileo. And if there's anyone that you know that you would like to hear on the podcast, please let me know. Or if there's anyone that you think would like this conversation, please share it on the social medias. Tag This Girl Sales. Let me know what you think. And I will be sure to read all of your comments. Until next time, happy sailing. Happy sailing.